0: said in Matthew 28 verse 19,
1: Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Barent Neustraten. Heavenly Father, as we go back into your word, Lord, we pray that you Give me to know what to say and what not to say. Lord, that you bless this sermon, that it may help all of us as we are seated here. And that we may have a capacity to pass on the wonderful truth about the wonderful God that you are and the love of Jesus for us. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. The Gospel in the Holy Place. Makum Kodesh is the name in Hebrew for the Holy Place. It's a very important principle. It wasn't until I came to this church that I realized the significance of the ministry of Jesus in the Holy Place. It is marvelous. We go back now in our thoughts and deliberations, and it's more like a teaching, I'm afraid, if you don't mind. And yes, I'll throw in some strange words, but that's all part of the study. And so the, the, the name that you see there, the word in Hebrew is Pesach. And Pesach means, let me get some feedback. Lame. Passover. you know the story? I hope you know the story. I thought I was going to be on safe grounds here. It's in the month of Aviv, which is the first month in the Hebrew religious calendar. The Babylonian name for the same month is uh, Nisan, which I'll use as well. From the 15th up until and including the 21st. You had what it was called, and this is interesting, you had a week of unleavened bread. So no leaven was used. For that week, and, and only for that week, the leaven was considered as sin. Now there's nothing wrong with the leaven, you can eat it to your heart's content and utilize it for all your cooking. Don't. That's not the message this morning. But for the week of unleavened bread, it was just an exercise. In fact, on the 14th of that day, you would make sure you had all the leaven out of your house. And what does that mean? It means everything that could stand between you and God, anything you're going to see, eat, whatever it might be, that is not in harmony with God's will, you would have that out of your house. You would reduce the temptation that way. And you do that for a whole week. Actually, you should do it for a whole life. But this was a reminder. This was a reminder. So, that is the week of unleavened bread. I wonder if you could remember the starting date, the 15th of Aviv or 15th of Nisan. I'd like you to remember that. Okay? You do that? Okay. Because you're all very good in the beginning, and then you get that sleepy... <laughs> Don't do that. Now, what is important here is the one on your right side. There is just a simple sketch, uh, artist impression, of a doorway, a few doorways. And then when you look closely, you can see the red. The red is the blood. Now, this is important. When it was instituted, the Passover, there was something that you had to do if you wanted to make sure that the first one, the firstborn in your household and the firstborn of your animals were not going to be killed. Because this was the night that they were going to leave Egypt. This is the night they were going to leave Egypt behind. And there's an old saying, and I, I mentioned it till many times, Getting people out of Egypt is one thing. But getting Egypt out of the people, that's another. And we all face that struggle. And so they had to apply the blood. And the reason is very simple. The angel of the avenger, the angel of the Lord, the angel that would destroy, would execute the firstborn of men and beasts would pass you by, there's the name Passover, Pesach, that's where that comes from, would pass you by because you were protected by the blood of the sacrifice. Now, who did the sacrifice point to? Jesus. You are protected by the blood of Jesus. You know why? Why? Because the life is in the blood. Jesus died for your sin. He paid the penalty. But for you to be sanctified, for us, you and me, to overcome sinfulness, we need His life on us. That's it. That's the basic message, but don't go home yet. (laughs) Nothing was to be left. Nothing was to be left, of course. That word there that I have pointed out last week as well on your left-hand side is shaa. That means door. But it also means mindset. So what happens is the blood of the lamb is on the life of the lamb is on your mind. Get the picture? You're standing ready to go. You are fully dressed. You are going to leave Egypt. You're going to leave Egypt stands for sin and slavery and slavery to sin. You're going to leave that behind. That is your makeup. That's what you have decided. Now the blood of the lamb is going to be applied to the life of the lamb, therefore, is going to be applied to your life. Your mind. Your mind. Sha'ar is mind. Does that make sense to you? The messages are very clear here. Nothing was to be left of the lamb and no bone was to be broken because the one whom it typified, no bone was broken of him either. And you can look up the text there as it records that part of the gospel. A text here that I'd like to take you through. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And God said, I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. The blood was for atonement. It is the life of Christ that makes the atonement. moment. If you want to be at one with Christ, you've got to take his mind on you. Do you understand this, folks? The death pays the penalty. But now you still need the mind of Christ. Get it? Okay. For it is the blood. And so they were never allowed to eat it. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Jesus at one time, when he spoke to the people around him, said this, most assuredly I say to you, you find it in the Gospel of John chapter 6, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have what? No life in you. Now, You are what you eat. That is true. They were surprised he said that. They couldn't bring it home. Why? They saw a Galilean teacher, but they didn't see the Lamb of God. Had they done so, they would have realized that every Passover they would eat the Lamb, typifying the Lamb of God. They would realize that. They didn't. To drink the blood was foreign to them. But it is an interesting thing. In the ceremony of the wedding, when the families decide and the youngsters decide there's going to be a wedding. And so they bring the both families together after they've made sure everybody's happy about it. And then something that is very an interesting ritual Which is really very much, what shall I say, intertwined with the the Lord's Supper, if you like, in my opinion. The father of the groom, the father of the groom, takes an empty cup, takes the wine, and he pours the wine in the cup. And then he brings the cup to his son, the groom, and he gives it to the groom who then gets up and he goes over to the bride and he holds it out for her for her to take it. And if she take it if she takes it it means yes I do. That's how it was. Yes I do. Why? The wine represents the blood and the blood represents the life. Will you take my life into you? And that is where the Lord's Supper is exactly like that. When you drink the wine of the Lord's Supper, he is saying to you, will you take my life into yours? Get it? That's the meaning. That's the meaning. Now, the earthly was the object lesson for the heavenly. The petitioner is in the courtyard. The courtyard is the world. Remember that from last week? Say yes, please. The incense represent the merits of Christ. And so now we have the process of sanctification. So you have two problems. You have sinned, Sin is paid for. Done. Paid for. Fully. Fully paid. Remember the word shalom. That's it. But now you still deal with your sinfulness. What is your sinfulness going to do to you? Well, it's going to make you sin again, isn't it? You understand that. Of course you do. And so now we need a process of sanctification. Now when you go into the holy place, you have there, on, as you walk in on the right-hand side, you have, which is the south side, uh, the north side, I'm sorry, you have the bread of life. Two stacks of six, the bread of life. And then on your left side, you have the light of the world, because of the seven bronze candlestick called the menorah. Now you understand that all of that represents the ministry of Christ. He sustains you with the bread. You eat his flesh. He sustains you also by guiding you because he is the light of the world. Get it? That's all his ministry. Now the next item that you will see is the altar of sacrifice before that curtain that separates the holy from the most holy. That's where the intercession finds place. Get it, everybody? That's the altar of intercession. Okay. Now, I would suggest Psalm 119, 105. You should know that by heart. For your word is what? A lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Remember that. That's all in in the holy place. Many people try to get away from the ten commandments for one reason commandment number four I wish I would have a dollar for every protestant believer who will say to me the law has been done away with and they quote Colossians the second chapter nailed to the cross you've ever heard that folks It's a very common cop-out on the uh, observance of the fourth commandment. And then you do what you do. And uh, let me tell you what you do. You say, well, what about adultery? Is that also gone? Shall not steal? Gone? No, no, no. Only number four. You know what attracted me to the Seventh Day Adventist Church was the opposition against the Seventh Day Sabbath. I thought to myself, Where does that come from? And why is it so ingrained? And why is it so strong? And why are they so insistent? And why do I not get? And I did. <laughs> I did. I tried to get the answers. Why do I not get the answers? Why it should be Sunday? Well, the Bible teaches very clearly. And history of the early Christian church confirms an observance and a commitment towards the Seventh-day Sabbath. You'll find out in a minute. Now, you and I understand that the ceremonial law, including therefore the festivals, the calendric Sabbaths, there were seven of them, which were the handwritten ordinances written by Moses, represents, of course, the substance which is Christ when he came. So type met anti-type. And so that does not apply to us anymore. But the moral law is not affected. The moral law is not pointing to Christ as the sacrifice. The ceremonial law, yes, they did. And festivals, yes, they did. But not the law that we know as the moral law. The ceremonial law was nailed to the cross. We know that and we accept that. The handwritten ordinances nailed to the cross. Type met anti-type. Now, I asked you to remember a date that I showed on an earlier slide. What was the date? Very good. I like it. You're good. You're good this morning. Now, Jesus was the Passover date of the sacrifice of the lamb. You had to select it on the 10th day of the months of Aviv or Nisan. I'm going to just now use the Babylonian one. And then it would be sacrificed in twilights, in between the evenings, it says in the Hebrew. Between the Erevbin, Bein Erevbin, that means between the evenings. That is between three and five, whatever. So you're still on the 14th of Nisan. It gets killed. And then it gets prepared. In fact, it was always roasted. It was roasted. And so you would eat later that evening after sunset. What was the date after sunset? Which one of Nisan, which one number? Fifteenth. very good. Why? Because sunset to sunset. Remember that? We are familiar with that. So the sunset, that's the end of Nisan. The sacrifice has found place. And now the consumption of the animal that you take in starts on the 15th. Get it? Is everybody clear on that? I think that's good. Okay. On the 15th of Nisan, it was a high day. What is a high day in Jewish thinking? That's two Sabbaths. So that is the seventh day Sabbath with a ceremonial Sabbath. The 15th was a Sabbath day. The 21st, the end of the week, was also a Sabbath day. But these were ceremonial Sabbath days, and they were calendrically determined. They were dated. So the 15th of Nisan could be next year, be on a very different day. Get it? You with me? And so for all the other calendric dates. So everybody's clear on that? But every once in a while... They fall together on the one day—a seventh-day Sabbath, with a ceremonial Sabbath day—and as I said, there were seven of them, and I won't go through them because you'll forget them. And so the Gospel of John points out very clearly that there was a high day on that in that year. That's significant. They wanted Jesus from the cross. They didn't want him to keep hanging there, which they would normally do. So they, the prediction was that wouldn't happen to him, and it didn't. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. And so, and so he was buried. He was buried. And whereas we know that we say that he was in the grave three days and three nights, like Jonah. Remember that story of Jonah. That doesn't mean necessarily 72 hours, because a part of a day was reckoned as a full day. So you have Friday afternoon, before sunset is a day. Then you have from sunset Friday to sunset Sabbath, you have the second day. And then you have from that evening of the Sabbath to 5 o'clock, 5 a.m. in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, he rose from the dead. I'll tell you why I know that. He rose from the dead. That is part of a day. That is then the third day. So three days, that includes two part days. Are you with me here? It's called inclusive reckoning. There was custom amongst the Jews, and they, many of them still do. So now we come to the 16th of Nisan, which is what day? Sunday, very good. He rose on a Sunday. And many will say, well, the seventh day Sabbath, we keep in, uh, we've changed that to the first day of the week in honor of the resurrection that happened on a Sunday. Did it happen on Sunday? Yes, it did. Are we directed to keep that day holy? No. We're certainly not directed to forego one of the commandments that he has given us. The fourth, there's no excuse for that. And so it was not practiced by the apostles. It wasn't practiced by the early Christian church. It wasn't until the uh, various synods and council meetings of the early papacy that they began to change it to the first day of the week. The 16th of Nisan is an important day. Let me tell you what happened on that day. I'll give you the reference in a minute. I'll do it now. Leviticus 23, verse 10 to 12. Don't look it up now. Do it. Please write it down and look it up when you're at home. That talks about a, uh, what shall I say, a ritual that was compulsory, that was compulsory to the nation of Israel. What they had to do on that day, the 16th of Nisan, whatever day it was, they had to go down to the fields of the barley harvest. The barley harvest could not be harvested until this writ had been performed. So you had to go down, and some men elected by the the priest, they would go down the steps, they would, in the case of Jerusalem, they would go down the Kidron Valley and walk to the fields, and then they would take two sheaves of the barley harvest. You could not harvest until you had done that. And then they walked up again, the steps, with the two sheaves of the barley, singing certain specific songs from the book of Psalms. They would hand the two sheaves to the priest, who then would walk into the holy place, and he stands before the altar of intercession, before the veil that separates the holy from the most holy. He would wave the sheaf because that is what? That's the first fruit. And because of the first fruit, all the harvest could be harvested. That first fruit is Jesus Christ, who at the prescribed time, an hour before sunrise, rose up from the dead. And because He rose up from the dead, and we are laid to rest, we will do so as well. Get it? That's the gospel. Every year, for hundreds of years, they did that. They practiced this, but they had completely forgotten the meaning. Completely forgotten the meaning. But every year it was practiced, it was done, it was a prophecy that he would rise from the dead. That's the point. Get that? He would rise from the dead, and he did And it's a wonderful thing. Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not leave my soul, this is messianic, in Sheol. Sheol is the grave. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The body of Jesus did not see corruption, not enough time. It was preserved. And of course, the body that he had. Amazing, he could go through doors that were locked. Remember that? As he appeared to them that Sunday. Sanctification. Let's talk about that. Quoting from the Adventist home page 319. Our defects of character must here be repented of. The necessity of the ministry of Jesus in the holy place. Without it, Calvary has lost its meaning. I mean that. Calvary would be to no avail if it was not succeeded by a sanctification. You wish me? This is very true. What about the thief on the cross on the right side? Had that man been given an extension of life, he would have been a follower of Christ. All the way. And Jesus knew that. He knew that. Our defects of character must here be repented of. And through the grace of Christ, we must overcome them while probation shall last. This is the process of sanctification. He says, this is the place for fitting up for the family above. Easy to understand? Straightforward, isn't it? John 16, verse 8. This is what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, if you you worry about whether you're sinning or not, get on your knees, ask the Holy Spirit to make it plain to you, and he will. He will. He does. Never fails. But with his conviction of sin, he will give you the knowledge... Of righteousness, how to do it right. That comes as well. And you have to accept that because there's a judgment on that. This is the sanctuary. Sin is the courtyard. Righteousness, sanctification is the holy place. Judgment is the most holy place. The unpardonable sin is the sin against the Holy Spirit. You know that, don't you? That's when you resist the prompting that He gives you, which you know you should follow. So there are three processes in principle. So there are justification, sanctification, glorification, and we're familiar with that now. Speak to the children of Israel, Exodus 31, 13. The significance of the seventh day Sabbath here is explained. Have a look at this. Surely my Sabbath they shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord. Finish it for me. Oh, sanctification. And the Sabbaths are connected. The Sabbath is connected by the, to the holy place. To the holy place. That's where your sanctification finds place. The seventh-day Sabbath is still supported by the holy place and the one who ministers there. It's never changed. It's a grave error to believe that it has. And so here is the significance. In fact, you can go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, you know, uh, about 6th century AD, uh, sorry, BC. Moreover, I gave him my Sabbath, he says, to be a sign between them and me, that they may know, and the word here is quite interesting, The that comes from yada, that means to know, which means a experiential knowing. I know, I know that he sanctifies me. Why do I know? Because I have a relationship with him. I can feel the struggle inside me. And I know which way I should go, and I best had go that way because he fights for me. He draws me. And you, you've had that experience. And you've got to yield to the Holy Spirit. How important the Seventh-day Sabbath is. And I am the Lord who sanctifies them. I like this statement. It's beautiful. This, to me, was a great relief, this statement. You know, I used to come to the SDA church before I became a member and I tried to understand the, uh, the doctrine, and it took me years. I made sure. And I looked around. There I was sitting in church. Everybody looked so, what do you want me to use, what word? Okay, you fill in the dots. And I didn't feel like that at all, because I knew what I was. But I thought to myself, how can I ever attain to a degree of compliance, holiness, whatever you like to call it, to be able to make it? Me, I mean, me. Here is a statement I love. Have a very careful look at this. When it is in the heart to obey God, when efforts are put forth to this end, efforts have to be put forth to this end. Jesus accepts this disposition and effort as man's what? Best service. He he what? He accepts it. He accepts it. And he makes up for the deficiency. There's going to be a deficiency. Don't use it as an excuse. There's going to be a deficiency. He makes up for the deficiency with his own divine merit. Amen to that. Now, (coughs) it's not the whole statement. Sorry. He will not accept those who claim to have faith in him and yet are disloyal to his father's commandment. You got to read that too. The remnant church keeps the commandments of God and has the faith of Jesus. That's it. That's us. Don't worry about perfection. I was amazed the amount of people that I, I, a number of people that I met that were so preoccupied by perfection. No. Worry about full surrender. That's it. He'll do the rest. Because... I have the evidence here right before you. Let's look at it again. Three phases: justification, sanctification, glorification. That's a copy of the pattern of the of the heavenly one. The courtyard is the world, the holy place, most holy place in heaven. In the lesson this morning, we had a very good lesson. Sorry about me doing all the talking in a bit, but it was it was it was good, wasn't it? So so, so we looked at it, and the question was uh, a reference to the building. What will the sanctuary in heaven look like? I don't know. I don't know. It will be massive. You go to the seventh chapter, I mentioned that. And sorry for repeating myself if you go to the 7th chapter of the of the I was going to say the gospel of Daniel which would not be a misnomer by the way if you go to the, or to the, the book of, of Daniel the 7th chapter there is a judgment scene and there are myriads of angels two numeral to count billions of angels what size room would you need for that and that is in the most holy place can you imagine the holy place twice It is the, obviously, what is happening in the ministry of Christ that counts. We have justification in the courtyard that finds place on forgiveness, and that's a daily thing. Sanctification finds place also on the daily places... Because the priest either takes a bit of the meat or he takes some of the blood. He goes into the holy place and he intercedes on your behalf. Because you, the petitioner, you who came to make the sacrifice, you confessed your sin. You also confessed your sinfulness. You know, I grew up in a, uh, a village where you had predominantly Roman Catholics. I told you this a number of times before. And I had this little friend, we used to hang out together, do things, sort of, yeah. And every time in the morning, his mom, who was a very strict Catholic, told him to go for confessions. And she would check whether he did or not. And I used to love that. Once he said to me, you should go as well, I thought, me? Yeah. And I stand there, and I stand there, and I wait till my little friend would come out. And I'd stand there and I'd do like this. Oh, mate, that was long. I couldn't help myself. I had to say that. And he used to get so annoyed with me about that. Confessions to a priest is not the way to go. But anyway, it is, of course the methodology used by Roman Catholicism that you stay up to date because you need the absolution "Ego te absolved which is the Latin I absolve you that only, only not Christ not Christ it is in the catechism the converts catechism of Roman Catholicism Christ can't forgive you the priest forgives you you don't most Catholics don't even know that yet it is in the catechism now the priest is in the holy place, heaven. The petition is where? In the courtyard. So his sanctification has to place found place where? In the courtyard. Does that make sense? Of course it does. And then glorification, of course, was once a year with the Yom Kippur. Now, the actions of the little horn power as it is prescribed in Daniel, described in Daniel uh, seven and eight. We have identified it as papal Rome. You've got to help these people. We have identified it as papal. All the reformers recognized the horn power of Daniel, the little horn power, to be the Roman Catholic Church. We're not unique in this. They all, they all confessed that. So the actions of the little horn power, the Roman Catholic Church at the time, justification, no, because Jesus died for the sins right up to his time, not afterwards. That's why you need the mess. That's why you need the transubstantiation. So the sacrifice of Jesus is not sufficient. You need the mess. Otherwise you are lost. You take that away. You take that away. You have sanctification. Sanctification. If I asked you how, how are we sanctified. You all of you would know that this is the power of the Holy Spirit. We just, we just read it. Sin, uh, you know, is a conviction, righteousness, and of judgment. He gives you the power. The holy place, study the holy place, the sustenance, the light, typify, assure you, you know where to go, how to go to get that sanctification. He will do that in you. No question about it. There's no excuse for it. Now, if you fail in your justification, if you fail in your sanctification, you will have no glorification. You can't. It's impossible. I saw that that was really under attack. There was a neglect in Protestant churches by and large and a complete denial by the little horn power who excelled in dragging down, bringing down The sanctuary of heaven. Study the second phase of the little horn power in Daniel chapter 8. And you'll find it right there. Now. Transubstantiation was in the 11th century. Amazing. What happened to the people in between before you had the transubstantiation? I suppose they're all lost. Amazing. What a doctrine. Amazing. Amazing. Only the priest accepts the wine, and uh, I'll just put the picture up, I don't mean any. This is the current Pope, and this is of course the ritual that are very rich, and quite extraordinary to watch, but that is what they do. The little horn power, Daniel 8 chapter 11, in the second phase, which is a religious action taken by the little horn power, the actions by this little horn power are this. He exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. Who is the prince of the host? Jesus is. And by him the daily, forget the word sacrifices, it should always be in italics because it's not belonging there. The daily is taken away, the tamid is taken away because you have the sacrifice that's insufficient by Christ and you have no function of him as your priest in heaven completely denied. By Catholicism. One point two billion people do not know that they have a redeemer. One point two billion people on this globe who think they're Christian and I'm not saying they're not, I have no right to judge anybody. One point two billion people are still ignorant to the fact that they have a heavenly high priest who loves them, who paid with his own life and what he went through the amazing cost. They don't even know that. It's terrible we need to we need to tell the truth the second angel's message Babylon is fallen is fallen gotta take that one serious the place of his sanctuary was cast down to be cast down is an Hebraic expression I I hope you remember this of rejection and Satan was cast down to the earth he was not sent to the earth by God he was rejected by heaven you understand that that's what it means even though it's also in the New Testament and it comes to us in the Queen of Greek how do you get sanctified in Catholicism purgatory oh boy I used to hear so much about that I was assured I'd spend a long time there but maybe purgatory the condition the process a place of purification you know A place of purification, of temporary punishment. Hold on, hold on, hold on. A place of temporary punishment. I thought Jesus took my punishment. Did you? Yeah, the Bible says he did. He took my guilt, he took my punishment. No, no, not so according to Catholicism. In which... According to the medieval Christian and the Roman Catholic belief, still today, by the way, the souls of those who die in a state of grace. So don't complain if purgatory were to be true, you found yourself in there, in there and that, that minister at the Seventh day Adventist Church was completely wrong. There you are in purgatory. Don't despair, don't be angry with me, because you're in a state of grace. You're just paying for your sins. Because because you are being made ready for heaven. It is terrible, isn't it? It is terrible. The Catholic Church holds that all who die in God's grace and friendship, but are still imperfectly purified. No robe of righteousness with Catholicism. But still imperfectly purified, undergo the process of purification, which the Church calls purgatory, So as to achieve, notice, the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. It is a tragedy. A massive, massive tragedy. Men are deceiving themselves. Protestants get it often wrong as well by thinking that the character will be transformed at the coming of Christ. There will be no conversion of heart at his appearing. Our defects of character must here be repented of. Through the grace of Christ, we must overcome them while probation shall last. That's it. Couldn't be plainer. Couldn't be plainer. This is the place for fitting up for the family above. That is our final destination. Turning around is here. Justification is what God does for us, Calvary. But sanctification is what God does in us. That's the difference. That's the difference. Psalm 51. Look at it. Look at the evidence. David understood. What did he ask for? Creating me a clean heart. That means a clean mind. His mind was wrong. The problem is our mind is that it is so often not sanctified. And we indulge in recycled sins and whatever it is. We all have to fight that. We do. But you don't do it alone, because you'll fail.' Don't, don't the language. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your holy Spirit from me. He understood about the Holy Spirit and his work. I love these are the verses that, I think, explain why I kept going in what I was pursuing. I love these ones. I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is sanctuary language. When you did the sacrifice of the heifer and the, the ashes were in the water, they used to, with hyssop twigs, they used to sprinkle the people. That's what it refers to. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you what? So who's making you clean? Yeah. The I one is. I will cleanse you from all filthiness. Everything all of it, from all your idols, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone, the heart of indifference, the heart that only he can remove out of your flesh. And I'll give you a heart of flesh, a heart of response, you see. And I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statues and you will keep my Judgments, which is the same word, "patim" as commandments. That's it. That's it. Where would you be without a heavenly intercession from the one, the only one who is qualified? And you will do them. That is the promise. I love this one, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from... Oh, I love that text. I love that text. Claim it, then live it. Matthew 5. Let your light so shine before man <coughs> that they may see your good works, your good works, know this, and glorify who? Why your Father in heaven? Because he sends the Holy Spirit. With Jesus, he sends the Holy Spirit who takes off Jesus and comes to you and gives it to you. Because the sanctification is his doing, not yours. So therefore the glory goes to God. The glory of what you have become by now compared to what you were, all goes to him. That's the way it is. To prepare ancient Israel to enter the earthly Canaan, we needed a sanctuary To prepare a spiritual Israel to enter the heavenly Canaan, you cannot do without a functioning holy place intercession in heaven. Through absolute surrender, God expects your surrender, He accepts your surrender, He accomplishes your surrender, God maintains your surrender. And why do I put Him here again? There's a story here that I find very interesting. This was Adolf Hitler, as we know, need no introduction. In Nordhausen, they had a concentration camp. And I know I tell you many stories of the Second World War, but if only we would take the object lessons from the Second World War, we would not have a war right now. That's just the way it is. The soldier there is one of the Allied uh, soldiers. So they entered the concentration camps, and they saw the bodies piled up of those who had perished. And uh, the commander said, round up all the people of the village. Get them. And take the spades with them. Bring it. So they all came, and he commanded them, these Germans, he commanded them to start digging a gravesite for those that had perished and were heaped on a pile. And then they put them in place. They, they, he got them to place them all in a row, I didn't want to show the other pictures. And then he made all of this, the, the whole of that, that that township, he made them all pass by, walk by, to know what their country fellow men had been up to. So that nobody could ever say, I didn't know. Because that's what they used to say up to then. That was his way of saying, look what you've done, what you have allowed. There are Albert Schweitzer was once asked, why is the world such a bad place? And, you know, the, the, the man said, because there are so many bad people. He said, no. No, it's not because there are many bad people. It's because everybody allows them to be bad. Mm-hmm. And you have yet to explain to me why we have to allow what's happened in Ukraine, personally. Any of those who have been to Israel would know about the Yad Fashim. Anybody been in that? Very good. You don't have to pay entrance fee, by the way. Did you have to pay? I think they still do that for free. A memorial and a name, that's what it means. And uh, Isaiah 56, there, verse 5, explains it. They have the garden there where you have the the names of the righteous. The one who... For no gain to self or no intent of proselytizing uh, or, or turning people into Christians, that wasn't there. The people who unselfishly, out of pure compassion, helped the Jews. And there's so many stories, so many stories, and, and, and these are the righteous. So there's a garden of the righteous there, which I uh, found very fascinating. It's in, uh, of course, Jerusalem. Terrorism is, um, has no religion. We always, well, for the reason we thought it was Islam. But it's not. It, it, terrorism has no, has no religion. It has misuse of religion. And whether you're Jewish or, or, or Christian or, or Islamic, that doesn't matter. And misuse of, 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 you can throw that in the rubbish bin. So what about this man? It's easy to hate him. I could put his face up. I didn't want to do that. But there's a message here that I want to give you. That we as Christians, we have to be somewhat different from the masses. Okay, I'm going to share this with you. Uh, Vladimir uh, Putin is a a possessed, if you like, uh, controlled, if you like, uh, an ego you can't climb over. We know that. We just know that. And how do we stop Putin? But he has to be stopped. I believe that. I come to the woman down here whom I have one of the highest regards for I could ever hold for a person. Coriton Bomu, who with her sister went to Ravensbrück, which was a concentration camp, where her sister perished. They were brutally... You know, This was forced labor in the most brutal form that you can imagine. Uh, that is what happened to her. She survived it. And she spent the rest of her life... She spent the rest of her life. She died in 1983. She spent the rest of her life teaching, preaching, sharing the necessity of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Didn't Jesus say, unless you forgive from the heart, my Father in heaven. God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. We are inclined to hate the sinner, the perpetrator. Don't fall into that trap. You may hate what they do, but don't hate the perpetrator. It's the message. She says this, and this is a language that you all understand. The wonderful thing about prayer is that you leave a world of not being able to Do something. Uh, let, Let me make sure that you all get this. The wonderful thing about prayer is... That you leave a world of not being able to... Do something. You get that so far? Have a look at this. And you enter God's realm... That is when you pray. You enter God's realm... Where everything is possible. How about those words? He specializes, God specializes in the impossible. He does. Nothing is too great for his almighty power and nothing is too small for his love and that includes every one of us. This story is where I will finish. So one time in Germany, I forgot which city it was, he was particularly effective in the message to the people, the German people and whoever else was there that forgiveness is an absolute necessity and as she was preaching and she was quoting from scripture and she was telling some of the things that happened to her uh, in in Ravensbrück there was a man standing on the back and she recognized him she recognized him as one of of the camp guards that was so brutal, so brutal to the people, the women that were there. She recognized him. Oh, he, he was differently dressed. Uh, this is, was probably one or two decades afterwards. But she recognized him uh, as if he was wearing his uniform, as if. But he didn't recognize her. And as he finished, she wanted to make her way to the back room to leave. But this man came in civilian clothes now. He came to her and he he virtually blocked the exit. He said, Frau Lein, I I wanted to thank you for the message. You know, I have found Jesus not that long ago. But I found him and his love and his forgiveness. And it gives me joy, it gives me hope. It's wonderful. I want to shake your hand and he took his hand and she found she couldn't have it in her to shake his hand she just couldn't do it and you know in certain moments you make your shortest prayers but they are your best prayers aren't they and she prayed oh lord help me there she was preaching on forgiveness Now she had to practice it. This is what she said. This is how she ascribed this. Into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. It is not on our forgiveness, he says. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives. He gives. Along with the command, along with the command, he gives the love itself. I hope that's your experience. And always will be your experience where you're confronted. Love, hate, love is from God. Hate always comes from Satan unless it's a hatred of sin. They cannot dwell together. And in your life, in my life, you and I have to make a choice which one we follow. By the grace of God and the power of the mission of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary in the holy place, we will be able to do so. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a God like you. Thank you for your love, your care and your patience, your forbearance and that you stay with us We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, help us. Help us to be what you want us to be, each and every one of us, that none may be lost. And Lord, for this we pray in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. God bless you. This message was made available by the Waitara Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit waitarachurch.org.au. This
0: is The Joy of the Lord by Akka Peldridge. I will I will not falter, I will not faint. He is my shepherd, I am not afraid. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord will be my strength. He will uphold me all of my days. I am surrounded by mercy and grace. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The The joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord will be my strength. I will not waver walking by faith. He will be strong to deliver me Say, The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Oh yes, the joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, the of the Lord, the of the Lord is my strength. This program has been brought to you by Three ABN Australia Radio.